Hi there, this is Ken Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two guests with me today. One I've been begging for a very long time to join me, and he finally relented. And we've got Ryan back. Ryan, good to have you back. Thanks, good to be back. And uh, Corey, I think you've listened to at least one podcast in the past. Maybe, maybe even more. A few. And you know that we do some introductions the first time somebody is here so that everybody has kind of a sense of who's on the other side of the mic. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you finally relented to joining us. <laughs> uh, so my name is uh, Corey, as Dr. Andy uh, mentioned. So I'm the administrative director um, here on Northeast. So social worker uh, by trade. And yeah, Dr. Andy has been working on me to, uh, to join the podcast. And uh, I hate listening to myself. So uh, that's probably why I didn't ever want to join. <laughs> um, but he... Uh, I guess gave me a topic that uh, I found interesting, so I decided to, to join. So the interesting part about this is Corey has a memory that is unbelievable. He runs a number of groups, including CBTP groups. I think you've run CBSST or co-led CBSST yes. groups and covered for those quite often. All of those groups, there is um, some intentionality in those groups to have the patients talk about the delusional thoughts they have partially to see how they get in the way of uh, life and the goals that they have in life, depending on the therapy, and in part on being able to tackle those with CBT processes. And Corey has this amazing memory and repertoire of experiences that he's had while running this group that uh, provide an unlimited background for being able to describe the symptoms that quite often are very difficult for medical students and myself to really wrap my head around. And I find that the experiences are really helpful. So uh, between the three of us, and in part led by you, Ryan, we came up with a couple of terms to talk about today. Do you want to introduce those and why they came up for you? Sure. So, um, so we were going to talk about, first we started with three French terms. Um, so there's folie à deux, and we'll describe them a little more. Um, but that's kind of a shared delusion between two or more people. Um, and then we can talk about Capgras syndrome, which is um, kind of an inability to, so an ability to recognize a face, but the person believes that that person is an imposter. Um, and then, let's see, Cotard syndrome, also known as walking corpse syndrome on Google, which is interesting. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where the person doesn't believe that their body is alive or they don't believe that they're there in person, which is kind of interesting. And then Fregoli syndrome, uh, which is kind of the opposite of Capgras syndrome, where the person believes that they see people like strangers following them and they think that those strangers are someone that they know wearing a different face. All right, so let's start off. Do, do any of you know anything more about Fregoli syndrome or have good examples of that? I've, I've kind of wondered if one of the uh, patients that we have worked with on the unit quite often will call us different names and I've wondered if that's a variant of Fregoli's but to be honest it's not something that we talked about very much in um, residency or medical school it's not something that comes up in the literature a lot mm -hmm. um, but you can find it if you search for it again Fregoli's F-R-A-G-O-L-I and I wonder if either of you two have anything to add to Fregoli's I think we may have talked about that same patient potentially the other day. Mm -hmm. um, I just found out about it on a Google search like, earlier this week, so <laughs> I thought it was interesting from yeah. that. And I'd never, I guess, really heard it, but then yeah, mm -hmm. when you brought it up and kind of described it, I was like, oh, I wonder if it's 
like this certain patient. And so it'd definitely be worth mm-hmm. looking into a little more. Yeah. And I wonder if that would help us kind of thinking of different patients, because I, I think the heart of all of these conditions are they are delusional syndromes, right? And so quite often there's a tendency to lump or to split these out depending on what the interest is. And sometimes the more we split these out, the more nuanced our treatment can become. So one of the things I think is coming out of this podcast is these delusional syndromes that we kind of group into delusional syndromes as a way to tackle them with uh, treatments like CBTP or CBSST might have some benefit if we look up specific treatments for the individual problem. Uh, With that said, let's jump to foliadu, shared delusional disorder. Uh, You read about this probably more than anybody. Ryan, do you want to jump in and tell us a little bit about what you read? Right, so it's the name of one of my favorite Fall Out Boy albums. That's pretty important. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I thought it was very interesting. So a lot of these disorders were kind of written about in literature a little bit. A couple, I think for foliadu, there was... It was recorded in like 1650, the mm-hmm. first potential um, description of foliadu. Um, and I think it was described as foliadu in 1877 by a couple of French people. It seems like the uh, French physicians who are mm-hmm. publishing about psychosis have some of the most descriptive um, language yes. about this. And, mm-hmm. and it's important to also remember that the use of Thorazine came out of France as well, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of progress happening in France that helped us move along treatment of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. so both descriptively and in terms of treatment. Right. Uh, Foliadu, Corey, any thoughts about this? Anything that you've seen that helps describe the condition to other people? So I know you talked about this, the truckers. I remember you, you brought that up, like in your, was it your residency? Yeah, we saw a couple of people who had been uh, using methamphetamine and were driving long-haul trucking and uh, came in to the emergency room describing how there were parasites on them and they would pull little pieces of skin off their body. And I think parasitosis is not uncommon with meth use, and I think I ran across a case report or two at the time about the same thing. Interestingly enough, I can't find what I thought I knew, so I can't find more data that says this is a problem of truckers now. Um, the other thing that I had seen in the past is every once in a while there are some reports of twins who share delusions. Uh, there's a fairly famous one you can read about on Wikipedia of a shared delusional disorder of, I believe, a couple of sisters. Um, we also have seen some patients here who have what's, what I would say is more overlap or a lot of shared kinds of beliefs in, in the delusional disorder. Remember, concordance of twins having schizophrenia is really only about uh, what 40 to 60 percent. I think you do need to know that mm-hmm. for the shelf exam. Yes. And so, if you do have two twins who have, uh, and that's identical twins, right? So, mm-hmm. um, that that overlapping of delusions is bound to happen at some point. I think. And I think, Corey, you have some experience here on the unit where you saw people who share a lot of the same space seem to start thinking about what they're hearing in similar ways. And maybe you'd want to comment on that. Yeah, so we've had um, a few patients, um, for instance, I remember one uh, felt like he was being attacked by Chinese demons, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously we'd work with him on, you know, trying to challenge those thoughts. Well, what we started noticing is that came up 
a few times with, you know, a couple other patients, you know, feeling again like they were um, being attacked by like Chinese uh, demons. We also had aliens, um, a few people, you know, kind of feeling like, you know, aliens um, were, you know, attacking them type thing. And I'd never looked at that as um, like a fully, fully ado till kind of we discussed it. And it's like, yeah, mm. that, that probably fits. Yeah, it seems like, for some reason, it seems like when I hear the term, I want to say, oh, this is a delusion that two people grow together, so to speak. But it really felt like in what we observed on the unit that a lot of the patients that we saw that seemed to um, have their, the way that they interpreted their already present schizophrenia symptoms or schizophrenia spectrum symptoms was that it kind of said, oh, this is a good explanation for what I'm experience, experiencing, and so maybe what this person is saying makes sense, and and that's now how I see this. I have yeah. these you know really terrible things that are making my life very, very torturous, and that's as good a, an explanation as any. Right? Yeah. So, so I think that you know, until there's maybe a lot more published on delusional disorders and specifically fully I do, if it's truly something unique, then I, I don't know. I think you just kind of pay attention to it as a delusion still, and maybe it's interesting how it arises. But I think we still tackle all of these things, at least as far as I know, the same way still. One thing I found interesting in reading some of the case studies of Fulvia do was that often there was one person who kind of I don't want to say instigated, but had the delusion in the first place, and oftentimes it seemed like it occurs in relatives mm-hmm. uh, who have really mm-hmm. close contact with each other and not with much else outside of that. So people maybe in like rural communities or more secluded communities who don't see a lot of other people aside from their family. And it seemed like a lot of time there was one person who had the delusion and another person grew to kind of develop it through them. And with some of those people, if you separate them, then the person who I guess was the recipient of the delusion loses that delusional thought. So it's reinforced by the people around them. And I think yeah. that fits with yeah. the experience yeah. we had. So it mm-hmm. sounds like the literature and what we observe fits together fairly mm-hmm. well. Yeah, there were different, it seemed like there were different classifications according to, I can't remember the name of the article, but one of the articles I was reading classified kind of, I think, four different variants that they were noticing of Fulia do, hmm. which was interesting. So somewhere they developed it together, somewhere one person developed a delusion and another person picked up on it. Um, and then a couple more that was interesting. Maybe people that had it independently and found each other, I'm guessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, on that note, let's jump to the third one, Cotards. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I think start with Corey having a description of this. Corey, we've had a number of people who have come through who have kind of different variations of Cotards. Yeah. Um, so the first one, um, and just not to give out names, we'll calls person Jim, um, for instance, uh, you know, Jim, you know, a lot of times he would, you know, just feel like he, he would lay in bed, you know, all day long and he'd say, Hey, you know, should we, uh, you want to come out? You want to come eat? Whatever. And he'd be like, well, you know, I'm dead. Like, what's the, you know, what's the point? And it's like, well, you're talking to me and it's like, Oh no, look at, look at my feet. You know, they're, my feet are rotting, you know, and, to his defense, they kind of looked pretty bad, but that was just because he wasn't wearing shoes or, you know, socks. He was um, having a tough time at that time taking care of himself. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, part of those uh, negative symptoms. And so, but we did, uh, we also had a, another elderly gentleman that I think had that, uh, he didn't talk about it as much as um, Jim, Jim. <laughs> as Jim, uh, you know, talked about it. But, you know, he 
truly felt like he was, you know, dead. So. And it's interesting, no, no evidence to the contrary, right? I, I think one of the things that helped me understand the value of CBT and motivational interviewing, maybe even more than CBT, was the idea that if, if you talk to somebody who has Cotard syndrome and you say, well, well how are you eating stuff if you're dead, right? Well, Corey, I've been dying for three years, right? I'm, yeah. But I'm dead. It doesn't work. But if you say things like, help me understand how you're dead, help me understand how you're alive, right? Help me understand this ground, yeah. then, it, then it, it becomes a little bit easier to find that, that point where you might be able to intervene and have CBT uh, approaches to challenge some of the cognitions. But yeah. I think generally speaking, we're more successful when we find the parts that are more accurate and work to expand those rather than try and challenge the negatives. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that, Corey. Well, and specifically in, in his case, um, I think we did a lot of the CBT um, approaches, but we also, um, there's a, a modality CTRS, um, cogn- um, recovery-oriented uh, cognitive therapy, which um, I think very simply put, we talk about you know, kind of, you know, the more you do, the better you feel. And I think with, with Jim, for instance, we, we kind of, I didn't focus a ton on like challenging, you know, those thoughts and more, let's just go live life with, um, and not to, not to collude with them and say, oh, you know, you're going to die. But hey, with the time we've got, let's just kind of go live life. And we got got him to a point where he was actually able to go on a home visit and go fishing. And his uh, family actually even called and said, hey, like, I kind of feel like I have my son back, yeah. which I think was really cool. And, and again, that was just kind of, hey, let's just, you know, focus on what we can do and not so much focusing on, okay, yeah, you're, you're dead. Right. Because it, it doesn't, it didn't, it wasn't very amenable. Yeah. Um, th- there's some variation in that distance between I'm fully dead and I'm mostly dead, not to you know, bring in the Princess Bride or anything, but um, <laughs> there's feelings that people have their insides rotting out is a kind of a variation of this. And some people who think, well, I'm already dead, but I'm a walking corpse, right? Yeah. Is, does that sound right to you? Yeah. And even uh, Jim, and again, this is not this person's name. Even Jim um, at times seemed to have some variation in how dead he felt he was correct which i think is the where the cbt stuff came in as we kind of challenged some of that it's like well yeah i'm i'm gonna die or you know give me three minutes um i had the opportunity um this gym had gone on a you know on a trial leave which means they leave the hospital and go to the residential place where he was at and he had a tough time and we ended up having go and pick him up and when we picked him up, he said, oh, you know, there's no point in, you know, picking me up. I'm going to, I'm going to be dead and give me five minutes. And, and so I would literally start a clock and be like, oh, it's been five minutes. Are you still there? And, you know, of course he would talk to me. Oh, just five more minutes. And so I definitely do. Definitely speaks to that. So that difficulty in, in those challenges. Yeah. Uh, you read articles mm-hmm. about this. So you've heard the experience Tell us what you read and how does that fit with what you just heard? Right. So I think this is the hardest for me to kind of wrap my head around just because of the whole, like, it's, it seems like it's so easy to disprove to the person. It seems like CBT would be the treatment of choice for this. Um, and that's kind of what I've been finding. It's, um, 
I actually found a case that was kind of similar to that where the person would say like, oh, I can't eat. Eating will kill me. But then they would say, um, in the in the case study, would say they kept on saying their bowels were rotting. But they couldn't eat because... But it, So it was interesting. There's this weird dichotomy between like, oh, I'm still alive. That's why I'm talking to you. That's why I don't want to die. That's why I can say I'm going to die. But I'm also dead. And I don't know. That was just really hard for me to kind of grasp. And I thought it was interesting. I do think, just generally speaking, when you think about schizophrenia and the schizophrenia spectrum illnesses, that's pretty normal to have these things that Mm -hmm. don't make sense. And I think the more as um, providers, social workers, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, whoever it is, nurses that are working with patients who suffer from this, not getting upset about something that seems really obvious is really helpful. And being able to go, oh, that's their belief. Okay, mm-hmm. it doesn't make a lot of sense and it gets them in trouble in the community in this or that way. And that's why they're here is to get that help, mm-hmm. right? Go ahead. Right. So, so you were saying though that CBT seems to be the treatment of choice or at least back right. away as you were saying that, right? Right, well it seems like a lot of these too is just a, a going at it from the point of like treating the underlying condition. So if they think it's an organic cause, treating that organic cause. If it's schizophrenia, treating the schizophrenia and then adding something like CBT on top of it seems like. Yeah, so, so in, and when we're talking about Jim, I think um, part of the reason why he might be less dead at times was uh, we introduced different medications that were more helpful for him. Mm-hmm. That didn't take away the severity of the delusions uh, completely, but it did, it did make it a little less, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it yeah. just didn't take it away. Um, and I do think, um, generally speaking, anything in a psychotic spectrum disorder, mm-hmm. medications and CBT-based therapy, CTRS we like a lot here, which is still a cognitive therapy, um, ACT for psychosis, um, family, a multimodal family therapy, right? All of the basics mm-hmm. that need to be delivered to anybody that has schizophrenia to help them be most successful. I think those also need to be part of treatment for any of these delusional disorders that are very debilitating. Right. I also found it real quick interesting that this kind of arose out of a either psychiatrist or psychologist describing melancholia and his idea of kind of more nihilism within patients and it kind of and this was Jules Cotard, the person who's this, who this was named after, and it kind of morphed into more people kind of referencing him to reference this specific delusion. So I thought that was interesting. That's he was very describing more depression um, and less these specific um, fascination, I guess, with being dead or delusion mm-hmm. that somebody was dead. So hmm. That's that interesting cool. because Jim really does struggle with depressive symptoms a, a great mm-hmm. deal. And mm-hmm. I don't recall the older patient you're referring to either with as much clarity. I don't remember a lot of... He was... He didn't talk about it nearly as much as mm-hmm. Jim, but I think if he kind of dug down, it, it kind of there. popped up. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't remember if he had the depressive symptoms the way same way Jim no, did. No. No. Okay. I didn't I don't no. remember that. But that's fascinating because mm-hmm. I, I start to now wonder if those Cotard symptoms are more likely in mm-hmm. patients that are psychotic and depressed. Yeah, that seemed to be something I was reading about a little more. I don't know how 
I feel like this needs to be studied more often. It seems like it's pretty <laughs> rare, but it did seem like a lot of people also were or had affective disorders or schizoaffective disorder. So. so one of the challenges we have is most of the literature that we came across was summaries of case reports, right? Mm -hmm. So the challenge we have is that these are only the cases that are published, right? We've had numerous cases here of these things, uh, of these types of symptoms that we've never reported or published. I assume that every state hospital and every county mental health system has similar kinds of cases that are never published. And yet there's this kind of the really interesting cases in Fregoli's, Foliadu, Capgrass, and Cotards are published, right? right? It seemed like Capgrass may have a little bit more data around it than some of the other syndromes. And so we're going to do a little bit deeper dive. But this is still a heavy, uh, it, it's heavily publication biased, right? Mm -hmm. And even most of the publications, it seems like uh, this was a really, really sexy topic in the 80s and 90s, right? And then all of a sudden the articles disappear. Yep. <laughs> and then there's a few, you know, kind of like, hey, let's go back and revisit this. But it feels like this is something that is a shelf exam topic, maybe maybe a topic for people that are trying to understand the neurological correlates of symptoms to the brain, and then not a lot in between that. Mm -hmm. You're nodding your head yes. So I can I'm, see I, that. Yeah, yeah, you can't see that, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about capgrass then, unless there's mm -hmm. something more you wanted to add about oh, cotards. Mm -hmm. uh, capgrass. Corey, I really like how you introduced the topics. Let's Tell us about capgrass from your experience. So yeah, so I've, um, one patient in particular um, that we've had a few times, um, uh, I would say fits this, you know, perfectly. Um, generally, it's a female patient, and in her uh, situation, generally it focuses around um, her family, and we'll call this patient uh, Jill. And, you know, Jill, a lot of times, you know, felt like her dad was replaced, or her brother, and she would it would bring a lot of anxiety, like, oh, I don't know who, you know, who I'm talking to. Is this the real dad is this, you know, the fake dad, and and a lot of times I'd try and use, you know, some of the CBT, you know, principles of challenging those, and and she'd be like, well, you know, like, you know, plastic surgery, like they could have, you know, gone and you know been replicated, you know, with plastic surgery, and and at times it would it would also change to the treatment team. Um, a lot of times, as her therapist, she would be like, well. I don't know if you're the real the real Corey or like the you know the duplicate you know Corey and I'd be like nope it's just me and she struggled with that you know a lot and you know brought a lot of anxiety because she didn't know if you know who the real person was you know that she was talking to that I'd been replaced you know by somebody. It's very distressing. Very. I was surprised at how distressing that is. I mean, I think about it and I go, oh, well, you're still talking to somebody that looks like it, sounds like it, talks like it. Don't worry about it, right? Yeah. But it doesn't work that way. No. No, and even her, um, you know, her dad would come and, you know, and visit, and she would end the visit, you know, sometimes just be like, oh, nope, it's not him. Like, and would just leave. And she would get emotional, cry, like, hey, you know, my family's not around. It was, again, very, very distressing. On a quick side note, one of the things that we look for quite often here are the amazing people in the treatment of schizophrenia. And this was a family uh, that 
there was so much support for Jill, right? And they, they showed up over and over and over, even knowing that the visit might last five minutes and they would be sent packing, right? Yeah. And, and, and yet, just this um, unending goodwill, which yeah. is pretty impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Cotard's. Uh, it was a patient who felt like their dog had been replaced. And that became very, very scary for the person, replaced by aliens, no less, in this case. And uh, I think that Cotards is probably more common. Capgrass? Capgrass, sorry, I said Cotards. I meant Capgrass, thank you. <laughs> All these French terms. So let me back up. The first time I saw Capgrass, somebody felt like their dog had been replaced by aliens. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we've seen it a number of times since. I think if you look very closely, many of our patients will have some subtle Capgrass signs. Yeah. Um, well, and I don't know why, so you brought up aliens, that's interesting, because Jill, same thing, um, at times felt like her dad or brother or grandma had been replaced by aliens as well. So yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if there's anything in the, in the literature about aliens or, or, or anything, but that's interesting. Yeah. It is a fascinating topic, isn't it? Why, why aliens come in or why... Satellites. I used to hear a lot about satellites when I was at the VA training, and that was about 20 years ago. I just don't hear the same things about satellites now, and maybe I hear it about Wi-Fi and cell phones and Bluetooth and different 5G. kinds of things, 5G. 5G. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you read mm -hmm. uh, a number of articles about Capgrass. Do you? I actually looked for the original case report of Capgrass, but I couldn't find oh, it. Yeah, that would be cool. But I did find a summary of of the original case report of Capgrass. And I thought it was very interesting in terms of how I think about Jill, again, not uh, very de-identified and with some things changed. Um, so the original case report was a woman who had two children, three children who had died, two twins and another daughter, I believe. And then um, she had, I think one daughter showing up, there were duplicates of her in other places. Mm -hmm. The police officers had been multiplying and, and there was like this exponential multiplication. So she had actually duplicates of people that she was working with. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think the language in the literature is multiples. Mm -hmm. And I think the language that we heard come up from Jill was duplicates, right? Didn't she talk about yeah, duplicates, duplicates a lot? A lot. And it wasn't a duplicate or the copy, it was duplicates. And I think I think these um, these cases become rapidly these patients who are suffering from this delusion that that multiple or duplicate or replicated uh, person it, it's it's a lot it's not just a little bit right it, it goes on and on and on and it's sort of a never-ending thing until you can get on top of the delusional construct overall which is kind of a challenge yeah well I thought it was interesting with her one way that we finally got to where she could try to challenge some of those things was the duplicate might not remember some of the memories of like when she was a baby. And so one way that she would do it is would call grandma and say, hey grandma, if, you know, I'm trying to figure out who the duplicate is. Are you, you know, really the grandma or are you not? And the grandma would be like, hey, you know, I remember Jill, like when you were a baby and, and I would bathe you in the kitchen sink. And that would help her, like, oh, yeah, like, the duplicate wouldn't know, you know, when I was little that I was bathed in the in the kitchen sink. And so that would kind of help her, like, oh, okay. And, you know, the hard part with it is maybe 10 minutes later, 
are you sure you're like the real grandma or are you the duplicate? <laughs> it's so. incredibly difficult to, for many of our patients to overcome the emotion yeah. of that uh, delusional thought that they have and the persistence of that, which I think is often reinforced by voices, yeah. um, even in the face of strong evidence, right? And, and it really is, I think our patients try incredibly hard to use CBT techniques and it isn't always easy. Yeah. You read uh, a lot of the things that I read, Ryan, Mm -hmm. about capgrass. Tell me what you found most interesting in your reading. I think I had thought of it in a completely different way than it seems like the cases are presenting it. Like, I, I didn't think about it. I didn't think that duplicates would even be involved when I first heard the description of capgrass, so I thought that was fascinating. I kind of got stuck in a lot of rabbit holes of just reading interesting cases. Um, I did read one about a woman and her dog. Oh, really? Yeah, which was kind of cool. I also read a this is going back, but a folio do where it was describing a woman and her dog, but it sounded more like conditioning. Anyway, it was, it was interesting. That's why I didn't put it in here. Cause I was like, I don't know about that. But, um, and then I read, um, I found one interesting article that involved capgrass delusions involving belongings. So mm -hmm. a person would have like a pile of clothes or I think she was admitted to a hospital mm -hmm. and her clothing, like, like they showed her her belongings and she said, no, those aren't mine. Those they even gave her her phone and said, here, yeah, use your finger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she fingerprinted it and opened it up and said. Mm -hmm. Which wow. I thought was very fascinating and I hadn't thought of it transferring to objects before. Um, so that was something really, and that was, that same article was talking about um, these hallucinations or um, delusions being associated with occipital lobe seizures, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting because, I mean, I was thinking more visual stuff. I didn't know if that would be involved with capgrass. I thought that would be more something like prosopagnosia or something. Say like that, that again and define it for us. Yes, prosopagnosia. Did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, <laughs> yes, we can get okay. Google to pronounce it <laughs> okay, later. Okay, no, that's fine. That pros P R O S O P A G N O S I A, right? That's prosopagnosia. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's an inability to recognize faces, which mm -hmm. seems slightly similar to um, capgrass, but obviously not the same thing. So mm -hmm. one of the things that's very fascinating to me about capgrass is, it, like I said earlier, it's, it was very, very sexy for about 20, 15 years roughly, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody wanted to publish it. And so they would get these individual cases and they would do the million dollar workup on these individual cases. So functional imaging, MRI, uh, CT, lab work, whatever the case was, everybody had a different kind of um, quote, million dollar workup that they did. And what they found was that there were a lot of cases where there were clear findings in the brain that they could either see functionally or they could see on imaging or they could find with an EEG or some other sort of test, right? Mm -hmm. About half the time, in fact, in the 255 cases that were reviewed by, I want to say Pandas, and this yes. is a 2018 article. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a whole lot of schizophrenia and what they called organic psychosis and dementia. And I think this is the other area where people are very interested in that uh, quite often with dementia, people don't recognize their loved ones and think it's somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. So what causes, what causes capgrass? Why do we have capgrass? It's a fantastic question. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna buy it, are you? <laughs> It's the key to everything, according to some people. <laughs> t t okay, so so that's uh, tongue-in-cheek, right? Mm -hmm. And you and I both talked about this before. Explain that a little bit so people know where you're coming from. <laughs> right. So one of the articles we were reading um, was talking about how 
if they found out what was the cause of capgrass, they would solve... It was kind of the key to figuring out how to treat or solve, I guess, delusional disorders of any kind or schizophrenia in some cases. Um, I think that line of thinking has... Faded away, faded yeah. since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think the hope was if you can have such a specific delusion mm-hmm. and maybe because we were able to tie it to some... And, and I didn't like the language of the Pandas article, what's organic and what's right. functional and what's... All of these things are just really difficult for me to understand what, how people categorize those things. Mm-hmm. But what, what I think they meant to say was, in cases where we can find a clear lesion mm-hmm. in the brain or a clear finding that is uh, like, a, like a seizure event, right? Those kinds of things where we can find a clear explanation for this, well, maybe we can tie those to the symptoms that we're seeing in front of us, right? And maybe that will help us understand where the home of delusional thinking is. But I think it didn't really pan out that way. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, some of the things that are associated with capgrass include things like brain tumors, degenerative diseases, vascular disease, TBI infections, endocrinopathies, toxins. And there were a few more, but my hand was starting to cramp after I wrote that <laughs> list that I just read you, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I do think that... Uh, at least for me, it was easy to think that the inability to recognize a face might explain this. And there's some evidence for that, right? Prosopagnosia might explain part of capgrass. And do you have some of the reasoning for that? Because I've got it written down and can read it if you don't want to, if you don't have it. I'm curious to see what you wrote down now. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll read it and <laughs> then you correct me. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the article uh, by Bourget, this is a 2004 article said, and I, and I think that diffuse uh, DTI, mm-hmm. diffusion tensor imaging, wasn't available for this article, and that might change things a little bit, right? Right. So, uh, Bourget, she talked about, Dr. Bourget talked about the commonality of right hemispheric lesions when, when they had patients who clearly had capgrass and a finding there were a lot of right hemispheric lesions, but there were also a lot of people that had bilateral lesions. It just looked like maybe it was a little more on the right side. Interesting. And they were most often in frontotemporal or parietal areas. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that they found, so that's just imaging, right? But if they go to functional imaging with like PET scans, they see changes in cerebral blood flow with paralimbic and temporal areas. And one of the things that was most fascinating in one of the articles I saw is that blood flow was restored with Risperdal in one of those cases, and you had a reversal of the symptoms. I thought that was really fascinating. And then also there's another line of thinking in this that neuropsych testing, when they do that, they seem to find more frontal lobe, frontal lobe uh, pathology. So maybe right frontal lobe, maybe paralimbic, maybe temporal, and maybe parietal. And yet there's also some case reports associated with people who had Uh, occipital uh, visual processing lesions. Mm -hmm. But then again, there are people that are blind that have Capgras syndrome. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I said. (laughs) So so maybe uh, facial recognition using visual pathways don't matter. And one of the articles that we looked at, and that was the PANDAS article, referenced, uh, they, they said very clearly, prosopagnosia is different than capgrass. And the reason they said that was because if you have prosopagnosia, inability to recognize faces, you have 
a skin response that is different, so I think it's a galvanic skin response, mm -hmm. is different than somebody who has capgrass. So your skin has a difference in the anxiety associated with it. And I, if I recall correctly, capgrass had the anxiety that was uh, picked up through the galvanic uh, skin testing, which right. fits with Jill's experience, right? Yeah. And then the other part that was very interesting was that there was a difference in the tracks that were uh, processed in DTI. They said that the facial recognition tracks worked in mm -hmm. capgrass, but didn't work in prosopagnosia. Mm -hmm. And there were emotional association tracks that didn't work in capgrass that did work in prosopagnosia. So they, right. they said, hey, there's a complete, there's an emotional piece that maybe will pan out in the future that's, mm -hmm. that you can recognize the faces, but you can't recognize the emotions with those faces. And maybe that's where the anxiety comes from, is not knowing, okay, I know that face, but the emotions are missing. I can't connect the dots emotionally with this person that I've known for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, in my mind, that fits somewhat with the idea that this tends to happen with loved ones, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. that, that a lot of this, the original case report was yeah. in part about loved ones that grew to include the, include the police department, but a lot of this seems to be about people that you get to know and know for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have that emotional facial connection. Which would make sense with the anxiety. I mean, if you think that a person you've known for 20 years or something is suddenly replaced with someone else, Mm -hmm. That would make sense. And a lot of these cases seem to pop up not in the, like a lot of our patients with schizophrenia develop schizophrenia somewhere around age, what, 17 to 25. But a lot of the mm -hmm. cases of um, capgrass that were reviewed by PANDAS, mm -hmm. these are older in many cases, even up into the 80s, which I think yeah. were part of the dementia cases that they talked about. I think the highest may have been 94. I think you're right. Mild. And I think the median was around 45 or... Somewhere in the 40s or 50s. Let me rephrase. I know you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was interesting that somebody, yeah. So does that seem to overlap with what you read? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, did okay with that? It does. Mm -hmm. Okay, Yeah, good. I just had that pulled up. And it makes, it's interesting because, I mean, you think of prosopagnosia as face blindness, so they can't recognize the face. It would make sense that that would be more related to visual processing versus the emotional processing. I need to let Corey go. And there's a lot more to talk about here. I think I want to just mention a couple of things and then get last thoughts from the two of you. Mm -hmm. the, the one thing that I, the two things I wanted to mention was first that this concept became very narrowed at one point. There were diagnostic criteria that seemed to revolve around this. We couldn't find diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5. We might not have just looked in the right place, but we couldn't find it mm -hmm. for any of these syndromes, right? But if you Google them, they're out there, and there's a lot of research being done on these. The narrowness of the concept of all of these topics, right? This is what it is. This is how it's described. Mm -hmm. That doesn't fit with all the case reports that are now in the literature, right? Not for any of these topics. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right to you? The second thing I wanted to point out is that there is an association between capgrass and homicide. Now the challenge is, I think there's a publication bias with this, but we do see our patients who really can get very upset about people being replaced and tend to be more aggressive. So I think there is something there. What it is, I don't know. And I think the key things you need to remember is not that necessarily 
cat grass leads to maybe more violent or, or more homicidal patients. But the idea that the violence may be related to the intensity of the paranoia and persecution. Sexual preoccupation seems to be a factor. It's often family that are killed by patients who have Capgras syndromes. Previous aggressive behaviors are always predictive of violent behaviors, and that's also true in Capgras. And substance misuse seems to pop up in this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so on that note, and so that we can get Corey to a graduation event, uh, last thoughts from either of you. Corey? I think these are all fascinating um, topics. It's something I did never learn about, I would say, in, in school, you know, until I came here. And I think it's one of those things until you, like, see it, it's hard to really wrap your mind around. You can read, you know, lots mm -hmm. of quiche reports and different things, but, like, when you kind of see it play out, it's like, oh, okay, makes sense. So, um, yeah. Corey, I really appreciate you being here. I really hope we can get you in again. I... You know, I think uh, this was uh, like an icebreaker. I think I would uh, love to join again. Not as bad as I anticipated. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm very, very glad. He hates you too much. No, not bad. So I appreciate it. Ryan, it's been wonderful having you here. You are on your last day of the rotation, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate you coming in on Thursday and Friday. I usually try to cut my fourth-year students free a day earlier than I cut you free this time, but thank you for putting up with that, and you did a great job. Oh, this is so fun. Mm -hmm. Glad to be back. And I won a game of Scrabble today, which I haven't done yet. So. Oh, glad to hear. That's, a, that's, that's actually saying something. I wish you all yeah. on the other side of the microphone knew the details, but many of you who have rotated through and will rotate through mm -hmm. understand that. Ryan, last thoughts about uh, the French mm -hmm. conditions, that, the French language conditions that we've identified today. I just think they reminded me of why I'm so interested in psychology and psychiatry. I think they're just fascinating disorders to learn about and I think the more we know about them the maybe better treatments can be kind of uh, specified for those people who have to deal with them so that'd be kind of cool. Very well said. My last mm -hmm. note is there looks like it, the the thing I like about these well-named syndromes that garner a lot of attention is it allows us to look biologically at at what I think are is probably a more run-of-the-mill symptom than we realize and helps us understand how we can maybe tackle all of the schizophrenia spectrum symptoms. And my very last comment is, of all the things we talked about today, uh, Foliadu is the one that seems to show up the most often on the shelf exams. So, oh, yes. So mm -hmm. remember that in your test preparation. Mm -hmm. And on that note, uh, thanks guys and team out. Team out. Team out.